0: Hey, good evening, everybody. How are we doing? Man, you guys went in the Mannings are all out of town. It gets awfully thin in this room, does it not? Okay, we'll make it work. I'm glad you guys are all scattered, though, way in the back where I can't see you. That's what intimate community is all about. Um, If this is your first time through, my name is Matt Moberg. We are so happy that you have chosen to spend the evening with us. As a reminder, uh, we are going to have a pizza party like no other party in America tonight, following the service immediately at 6 p.m., so please stick around. Also, as an announcement, the pizza is not burning. It's just the ovens on fire? (laughs) No, they're apparently from, like, the 50s. The ovens are dated, to say the least. And so that's if you catch any odor, that's what that is. Um, I've started many sermons in the past with different stories around me, uh, what some would call unjustifiably waking my wife up in the middle of the night, uh, whether it's for the time that I, I woke her up, because I thought there was a mouse in our room, or at least in the general, like, on our block somewhere that Lauren needed to take care of. It was a paranoia. There was also the time where we first had our son. I don't know if any newborn, newborn, new fathers had this experience, but you start like picturing your baby drowning in your blankets and really dark things? No? Just me? Great. Okay, so I woke up my wife told her, I said, hey, Wyatt's falling off the dresser right now, and you're not doing anything about it. And that's disappointing. <laughs> I understand how those, um, those maybe are unjustifiable reasons to wake a wife up. Um, this past Monday, I felt like I have a justifiable reason, though. I got a text late at night, it started, it went into a conversation that led to me being overwhelmed, pacing the floor, hot sweats, wondering, have people been lying to me my whole life? I wanted to make sense of this, because what I found out from this friend is that something that I have believed to be true since the day I was born was indeed a lie. Thanks for coming, Becky, good to see you. Does anybody know what Monday's holiday is? Last Monday, do you know the name of the holiday we had? That's not true. You're wrong. You hate America. You, too, have fallen for the lie. It is actually not President's Day. I didn't know that. Christian, did you know that? Not that either. At least not here. What I came to find out is that in 1879, when it was started, it was George Washington's birthday. That was the initial intent. This is 10 years post-Civil War. You have a polarized... Country And one of the unifying acts that people attempted to uh, take to bring the country together was to celebrate George Washington's birthday. That was the original holiday that they had in mind. Um, That's not, though, what we celebrate here in Minnesota. We do not celebrate uh, George Washington's birthday. That would not be the exact phrasing that we would use, nor do we celebrate President's Day. What I had no idea about, but would come to find out at 11.30 p.m. on Monday night, is that we celebrate Washington's and Abraham Lincoln's birthday on Monday, February 22nd. That's a big deal, because not every place does that exact same thing. If you go a little to the east in Wisconsin, they don't even officially recognize this day at all. There is no priority in that state about honoring other people's lives or loving your neighbor. That's just not something that they do over there, and so they're not about that. Now, if you go further to the south, if you go to Alabama, for example, um, they, they do honor this day. They have Washington's birthday, but they don't celebrate Abraham Lincoln's birthday. Instead of Lincoln, they celebrate Thomas Jefferson. If you go to Arkansas, they celebrate Washington's birthday, and they celebrate Daisy Gatson Bates. If you go to Georgia, it's just Washington. Other places in the country, um, it is a, you you have President's Day. So you have President's Day that's spelt with no apostrophe, President's Day with an apostrophe that follows the S, and President's Day uh, that precedes the S. Why aren't you all overwhelmed right now? Like, I'm like shaking, just thinking about this again. So I'm climbing into our bed, shaking Lauren's head, like, you need to know this. You have been lied to, or did you know, and you haven't told me? One way or the other, we have a problem on our hands. And so, as I'm telling her this, though, She's giving me the look that you're giving me because I'm thinking about how weird this is, and she's looking at me and thinking how weird I am. And I started to connect all the dots on what is happening in our country and why it is this way. In the same way we're on this side of the bed, I see our story as a people, our story, the cultural narrative perhaps in a different way than my wife does, we tend to see our story as a people a little bit differently than they do in the South. We tend to see our story as a people here in Minneapolis a little bit differently than they do in, say, Malacca. Different cultural narratives all being had by the same group of people. Now, this has always been true, right? And this has been a part of being a United States, a Republic of States. We're bound together in this thing. Regionality speaks into how we see our story as a people. That's always been true. What hasn't been true or real or present is social media. Because now, you have these different paradigms and perspectives, all these different cultural narratives that once were invisible and hidden by geography, we all now share the same town square. And so we have these clashing and colliding ideologies, whether it's big-level political perspectives or how you raise your kids, the kind of schooling that your child receives or what you do for a living. Every conviction that you put out there tends to receive some kind of critic. Every kind of critique is often quickly condemned. In fact, somebody sent me this um, tweet yesterday as an example of what that might look like. If you ever get lost in the woods, whisper something mildly critical of Bernie Sanders and a thousand people will come and find you very quickly. It's led to this reality where we've lost our ability to have healthy dialogue where we've lost our ability to see one another's full humanity, and in response, we have divided up our country into they are the enemy, they are opposing the goodwill of who we are as a people. And until we take them out, we're not going to make progress any further. We're in a place where we are trapped. It's interesting to me when we think about enemies, think about how do we handle enemies, How do we respond to enemies? How do we love enemies? I was reading this past week a scholar who was speaking about the early church, and they said that in the early church, the text that the church went back to the most, with nobody coming close, is Jesus' text in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, to not just love your neighbor, not just love those who love you, but to love your enemy as well. Love to those who are in direct opposition to you, who want to take you out, who disagree with you, who do not see your full humanity. Love those people right there. Now, we've talked about this text for a long time, right? We are familiar with Jesus' command to love your neighbor and your enemy. That's not new news. There's nothing that you haven't heard inside of that, but it often gets neutered because we keep it in the abstract as opposed to making it particular. I mean, it's easy to speak and believe in loving your enemies until you have an actual enemy. It's easy to believe in blessing those who curse you until you've been cursed out a time or two. I think that collectively, we're all committed to works of healing until you are the one who's been harmed. Because when you are that person, when you have collected a wound and thus also a wounder, you start to realize that love is a heavy thing to lift and the words of Christ, well, they're a hard teaching to live by. Everything changes, gets a little bit more problematic when it gets particular. I was watching an interview with Colbert And on this interview with Queen Oprah, he is pontificating about uh, faith and how faith has sustained him, given him proper perspective in life, how to see other people, how to actually know what priorities should be in place and what things are out of whack. And as he's pontificating in all these abstract terms about what his faith has meant to him, Oprah, she starts to push a little bit, and she asks to get particular.
1: The hope for love. And I think now we found is that I love my country, I love science, I love facts. I, I, I love people regardless of their race or their, or their gender identity. And the challenge now is to love the people who don't seem to have that value in their heart, or at least how it's politically expressed. I don't know what's in their heart, how it's politically expressed. Even the people I disagree most with, if I sat down and had this conversation with them, we might leave the conversation hand in hand. But when we're making jokes about people's political action, it's very hard to see them as more than their ideas. And you cannot love their ideas. You can only love their selves. Yes. And so that's the challenge. The last challenge is to love the people you disagree with the most. To love the people you disagree with the most. Right. But that's the harrowing challenge that Christ sets forth. To love the people you disagree with the most. Because well, loving yeah. the people you agree with, anybody can do that. That's right. Yeah, anybody could do that. That
0: means you have to find a path to love Donald Trump.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I didn't say I was a good Catholic. As we go into these words tonight, I want to Talk with you while you are thinking about the ones who make you stop talking. The ones who make you cringe and reach for a glass of water. Who are the faces that come to mind that make you uncomfortable, that you want nothing to do with? Are there people in your life that you want so much distance from that you won't even say their name when you speak about them anymore? Instead, you call them my ex. My ex or my, my kid's father, or 45. I well, want nothing to do with that. Do you have actual enemies? Let's be particular as we go into this text tonight. Matthew 5 is where we're going to be looking. It's from the Sermon on the Mount. J- Jesus is, this is what uh, many scholars believe. This wasn't an actual one-time sermon, but really the... the the best teachings of Jesus all assembled in one moment to represent what his, his dream, his vision was all about. And he says this in Matthew 5, 44. You have heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anybody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anybody wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you from, where are we here? Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you too may be children of your father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In using a, a kind of a classic rabbinic linguistic tool, Jesus starts off this moment with saying, You've heard it said like this, but I say this to you instead. It's a compare and contrast. This is what you're used to understanding. You thought it was President's Day. That's what I was doing, actually. I was using a rabbinic tool there because you thought it and you were wrong and I was right and I was enlightening you. You're welcome. Jesus here, though, is, is saying that you've heard it said, but this is my reality. This, you want to understand the heart of God? This is what it's actually like. And it's not lost on me that in his you heard it says that he is moving from a, a singular use of enemy to a plural use of enemies. Enemies, the Greek word here is ekthros, and it basically means anybody or everybody that you struggle to stay in the the same room with. And why I think it's important that Jesus moves from the singular to the uh, plural is because had he kept it in the singular, what would have happened is the people in that space, on that hill with him, every eye of every heart would have been fixated only upon the Romans because they were the primary problem. But when Jesus goes plural with it, it's no longer just about the Romans. It's also about your coworker who took credit for that project that belonged to you. It's not just about Caesar, it's also about your uncle who will not speak with you. It's not just about the soldiers, it's about your friend who no longer will call you when you need them to. It's not just about an empire, it's, it's about that home that will no longer welcome you in. An enemy is not just one particular political dominant force. It's anybody and everybody. And to those people, Jesus says, you need to love. You need to love them. Jesus says that I know that you've heard it said ever since you were a kid. Every rabbi that's come through your way, everybody who's looked you in the eye said that you want, if you have enemies, you step on them. Get them out of the way they're a problem remove it problem is gone but i say to you if you want to be a part of my tribe if you want to walk down my road that's not your story you will love your enemies instead now personally if i were on this hill and i were taking in this sermon and this teaching were actually happening in front of me i probably would have left because that doesn't seem to be like a healthy response to enemies. It doesn't feel, personally, all that noble. It actually feels kind of naive. Like, if I love my enemy, if I'm loving those who are harming me, how am I not enabling them to continue in their harming? Like, what if this person who is my enemy is also a sociopath? What if this person is, is dangerous? Am I supposed to just look the other way and keep on keeping on? Furthermore, it also is not just dangerous and maybe naive on that level. It also just feels like how do you live a good story if that's your central compass? Because if this is my moral compass where I have to love every enemy that comes my way, then are you saying that I have to be that guy who looks at a, a neo-Nazi rally and there's counter-protesters and say, well, there's good and bad on all sides because I love my enemies. I can't. It's almost as if the fear in me, the reason why I get a little angsty when I read this text at first is because it feels like if you're going to have a moral compass that looks like this, then you no longer can have a moral compass. Like you abdicate your responsibility of having a moral compass if this is the perspective that you're actually going to take. And perhaps the only reason why we actually look at it like this, perhaps the only reason why we think about it in this way, it has more to do with the fact of where we are than it has to do with what Jesus actually said. Because in our understanding of enemies, be it in the films we grow up with or in the classmates that we share our lives with, the co-workers, family, whoever it might be, there are really only two options when it comes to how we respond. There's the first option, which we would know as the myth of redemptive violence. We've talked about this in the past, so as a brief refresher, this is the idea that if somebody hurts you, somebody wounds you, somebody does you wrong, you are justified to then give them that same wrong in response. They bomb us, we will bomb them. They gossip about us, we will create a lie about them. When they go low, we're going to find a way to go much lower. And in doing so, the world will be made right. That's every movie that we have, right? I mean, you could talk about Lion King, you could talk about Deadpool. It does not matter. It's the same story again and again, where it's one violent person doing something bad, another person does something violent in response, and the victor is the person who does the most violent thing that takes the other violent person out in the end. That is the myth of redemptive violence. It is what the, it's the narrative that our country, that our communities, we run on. The, uh, and, and I think that, like, too, you, know, you break down history, Whether we're talking about wars or your own personal history, I think that we know that this doesn't work, right? It doesn't actually make the progress that we would desire to see made. The flip side, though, is that the alternative option, it feels even more stupid. Because if we can't push back, if that's not actually going to work, then is being a pushover helpful at all? Like, does being devoted to Christ require that you are a doormat for everybody else? If we're called to just be walked on, stepped on, exploited, is that the task that Jesus is asking us to take on? If he is hitting her, is it wrong for her to say stop? If black men in our city are being discriminated against, Is it wrong for knees to be taken? If women are being treated as objects and nothing more, is it wrong for them to assert their own humanity and the dignity inside of it? Well, if it's just about like doormat, that's the divine commandment is that you are supposed to just take it and be happy about it. Well, then I suppose, yeah. Is that what Jesus is saying though? Or is there a better option at hand? I love this text because Jesus is advocating neither for a virtuous passivity nor a violent reactivity. He is saying that both those two options are broken. How about this for a third way? And he offers up three specific examples of what a third kind of response might look like when we're talking about how to engage with our enemies. I want to walk through this. And as I do, what I'd like for you to do is is be thinking about, because I I would love to hear your thoughts in a moment. When you look at the three examples that Jesus talks about what this love looks like, I want to hear what you hear, right? So what does this love look like? What comes to mind when you hear it? The first one that he says is this. If somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek. So this is a text right here that has led to many swollen cheeks of people my own grandmother used to be abused mercilessly by my grandfather and part of the rhetoric that kept her in that marriage for as long as she could is that that was her job just focus on the positives just keep turning your other cheek this is where these texts can get very dangerous because narcissists tend to thrive on naive turn cheek turners right So what is Jesus saying here when he says this? We know this text, it's in our vernacular. We we know it, we we say it all the time. Just got to turn the other cheek, got to be bigger. When they go low, we go high. Just turn the other cheek. We know this text, but we forget how Jesus names it. Because Jesus isn't just saying turn the other cheek. He's talking about specifics in place here. In this text, at this time... Jesus is getting specific about which cheek gets turned. And that matters because it speaks into which hand is doing the hitting. In the first century, your hands were used for different things. Your right hand was understood to be the hand of power, authority, control, domination. This is why in the biblical scripture we have um, terms like the right hand of God. Right, That is the hand of power. The left hand is the hand that you use if you're reaching for toilet paper. Different purposes, personal grooming, left hand. Punching somebody, right hand. That is how it was done. If you were going to inflict a wound on somebody, you would do so with your right hand. But in this text, Jesus doesn't speak about the right hand, but he does speak about the right cheek. Now, for centuries, how we've interpreted this text is it just saying if somebody hits you on your right cheek. Jerome, can you stand up for me? Let's demonstrate this. I won't actually hit you. Well, I haven't made up my mind yet. For centuries, this text has just been translated as if somebody were to hit you on the right cheek. Now, if I am going to inflict a wound on somebody, if I'm trying to actually leave a dent in you, I won't. Yes. I don't think I would ever do that. This is your right cheek, right? So if I can only hit with my right hand, I can't. I can't do that. You see that? But the only way that you can do that is if I backhand slap you. Correct? Everyone, give it up for Jerome and his audience participation tonight, huh? The point being is this is that a slap and a punch were also very different in the 1st century. If you were punching somebody, you were recognizing that the person you were punching was a peer, an equal. Somebody on the social ladder that you were on the same rung with. There was no discrepancy in in social standing. If you were slapping somebody, there was. You were slapping somebody, you you were saying that they are less than you. They're not equals, they're not peers. So when Jesus says, if you get slapped on the right cheek, turn to that person, your left cheek. Try to slap somebody when they're holding their left cheek out at you. How do you do it? What is Jesus saying here? If you get hit on your right cheek, if you get slapped on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek. If somebody is going to come at you with a wound in their hand, they can hit you. But don't you let them take your humanity you look them in the eyes and make sure that if they're going to proceed with this pain that they intend for you that they at least have to recognize that you are an equal first that you are endowed with the image of God and you need no qualifications to prove otherwise if somebody is coming at you turn to them the cheek that will force their hand to decide. Now think about the implications of this. If you are a slave and a slave owner, for example, slaves with their beat slapped all the time since they were babies, grown up, they hear what Jesus is teaching out on the hills. And they get this idea, so the owner comes out at them and slaps them across the face. But the slave has the teaching of Jesus fresh in his mind, so the slave turns his other cheek towards the owner. And now the owner is in a predicament. Because on one hand, if he punches him, the whole social hierarchy gets disrupted. You just punch somebody on their left cheek, which means that you see your slave as an equal, which means that they can no longer be your slave. Flip side, though, if they just walk away, then that slave just dictated the terms of your conversation and they now have the upper hand of power dynamics. All because you stood your ground and you said, I am a human being made in the image of God and I refuse to participate in anything that suggests that I'm less. When Jesus says to love your enemy and it looks like that, start thinking now about what that love actually looks like. The second example that Jesus gives is he says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Okay, so let's talk taxes. Um, At this time, first century world, They lived in a society that was run by the triple taxation system, which means that uh, Jewish people had to give taxes to the temple, the Herodians, and also the Romans. This ultimately left God-fearing, hard-working, honest Jewish people with 90% of their income being taken away from them. Most of the people were barely surviving, barely making ends meet, but there were some who could not even do that. And so if you were, had all of your money being taken f- from you and you still had to pay um, some taxes, the people in power would then come for your land or come for your property. If you didn't have the cash, they'd come for your cows or they'd take the land that your family grew up on. But what about the people who didn't have any land? What about the people who didn't have any power? Legally, at this time, You you could legally bring somebody who failed to pay the taxes to court where you could charge them with failing to do so, and they would have to give you their garment. Which is a problem because you only wore two pieces of garment. You had an outer garment, and you had an inner garment. You had your jacket, and you had your briefs, outer and inner. Jesus says, if they come at you, take you to court and try to take your coat, hand over your boxers too. Strip down. Get in your birthday suit. Stand there naked. And you will not be ashamed. Because also at this time, when it came to nudity and people being naked, The shame wasn't on the naked person, the shame was on the people who were staring at the nudity. This is why in Genesis, when Noah, after being on the boat for as long as they were, after he gets toasty and drunk, and he's laying down naked, and his boys walk in and they see him, the shame does not fall on Noah on the ground, the shame falls on the boys who were looking at him on the ground. And so if you are standing in court at this time and they just took your garment, and you start slowly peeling off garment number two, You're putting them in this awkward predicament where they now have to decide. They can take your clothes, but it's going to cost them their own dignity to do so. They can continue to treat you this way, but they're going to have to look at the ugly thing that they are participating in at the same time and you present something as striking as that right there, in a moment where they have to actually make a decision, some of them may say, they may come to the end of themselves and recognize that they can no longer participate in this any longer. When Jesus says that we are to love our enemies, what does that love look like? Third example. We've heard this. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them. Uh, two miles. I had this, this boss who took this text, and I don't think he understood this text. He was saying that we are being paid for working 50 hours a week, but we should be Christians who go the extra mile, and so he expected us to be working 60 hours a week. That's not right, Nicole, right? I didn't think so either. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. What is the story here that Jesus is trying to tell us? At this time, legally, prior to any Humvees or tanks, Roman soldiers, it was written in the legal codes where they could force civilians to walk up to one mile and carry your, their pack. So, I mean, you play this out in, in, in... I thought I spilled coffee. We're okay. Is that spill somewhere else over here? Becky, can you keep your eyes on me at all times, please? Thank you. If you play this out, like, in an actual scenario, if you are a... Um, a Jewish man, and you're out on a picnic with your family, Saturday afternoon, enjoying yourself. Finally, you've been working all week, and you finally have some space where you can just be, let your hair down. You don't have to worry about anything anymore. But then along comes this big soldier who's got a pack on his back that is equal to his size, and he says to him, "You, I want you to carry this for me uh, one mile in this direction legally. You have no choice, but you have to say yes. You have to say yes. And so you would take that pack, as heavy as it may be, and you would start walking one mile. No more than one mile, but one mile. Now this is part of how, uh, you know, when you, when you look at empires and how they are run, it is run on microaggressions like this that remind the people who is in power and who is not. If it's only up to one mile, it's annoying, but it's not fatal. We can deal with it. We can learn to tolerate it if we have to. Jesus says, I see that law. But when you reach that one mile marker, don't stop stepping. Keep going forward. When they reach for that pack at the one mile marker, you just keep on walking. And now it puts them in another kind of predicament. Because on one hand, if they allow you to keep walking, not only are they um, doing what they were not supposed to do, the soldiers are now breaking their own code. It wasn't just that citizens were forced to have to carry these packs. Soldiers were by law bound to only allow people to carry their packs for one mile. And so now you have put this person in a predicament where you're forcing them to make a choice. You either walk with them, and continue on the path, you allow their power and their choice to dictate where you are going to step next, or you forcefully take it from them, which too was against the law. In both of these moments right here, Jesus is advocating for subverting these demands of the day and saying there is a better way forward. He's exposing the ugliness of it all, and he's offering an invitation to opt out of it. When Jesus says to love your enemy, what does that love look like? When you think about cheeks being turned, clothes being offered up, extra miles being walked. Name out loud right now, for just for me, what are some of the words that come to mind for you? For Jerome. John, Maggie? Showing your humanity. Showing humanity. What does it say about the other people's humanity? It acknowledges theirs as well. It theirs as well. My angst going into this text was. I think it's a beautiful idea, love your neighbors, but it enables people to stay in their ugly. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying when you love your enemy, you are not enabling people to stay in their ugly. You are enabling people to finally see their ugly and to see that they are more than they presently are behaving. You are not trying to shut them down. You are trying to open them up. You're trying to pull them forward into something bigger and better. And I think we would all would be bigger and better if we did the same thing. If we opted off of that seesaw of tit-for-tat violence, you hit me, I hit you, you're in power, I'm going to take you out, so I'm in power. You need to lose in order for me to win. We'd all be better if we got off of that seesaw. We'd all be better if we stopped letting people walk all over us, if it wasn't about us stepping on to other people or being stepped on, but it was actually about us stepping up and doing something bigger and better. And one of the ways he does that is by showing people in those moments the ugly that they're in, while simultaneously making space for them to opt out of it for themselves. It is creative. It is imaginative. It is beautiful. It is not soft, it is strong. I want to show you this.
2: Exit Deutschland is the NGO that provides support for individuals seeking to leave the Nazi scene. Yes, believe it or not, brainless neo-Nazis are still a growing movement in Germany. Year after year they overrun and bother several villages like Wunzidel to demonstrate. But in 2014, Exit Deutschland, together with the citizens of this small town, took them by surprise. We present the first involuntary charity walk, Nazis against Nazis. For the first time, the Nazi march was turned into a charity walk, actually an involuntary charity walk. For every meter the neo-Nazis marched, 10 euros were donated by citizens and small businesses to exit Deutschland. So, for the neo-Nazis, it was a lose-lose situation. Either they stop their demonstration and go home, or they raise money against their own cause. We turned the Nazi march just in its opposite a colourful, funny, and useful charity walk with supportive banners and even bananas. In the end, neo Nazis raised 10,000 euros to help other fascists exit the Nazi scene. With the first step of the neo Nazi, the digital campaign went online so everybody could see what was happening in Wunsiedel in real time. The sarcastic tone was a central driver of the campaign, and led to the huge social media coverage. The
1: neo nazis Neo-nazis. Exit. Deutschland. Mesi-Nazis. nazis Nazi-nazis. Uh, they basically transformed the march into its opposite.
2: This revolutionary way of fundraising was successfully replicated by other cities, raising a record amount in donations to exit Deutschland, which means that, as ironic as it sounds, thanks to neo-Nazis, every year there will be less and less Nazis in the world.
0: Christ, give us the imaginations, Lord, to help expose ugly practices for what they are. God, give us the courage, Lord, to stand up for the dignity of our own humanity and the convictions, God, to refuse to participate in anything that is dehumanizing, anything that creates second-class citizens, anything that says that these people are more important than those people. God, give us the humility to always be making space for the ones who wounded us to be the ones who walk with us now. In Christ's name, we pray all these things. Amen.